Hi everyone and thanks for joining us again and a massive thanks also for your feedback. Love to know who's listening and if you're enjoying what you're hearing. Hopefully you all listened to Kenny Reed part one and are back for part two of the blockbuster, the sequel. If not and you're a Kenny Reed fan, you might want to scroll back and give part one a go. It's full of great anecdotes from his time with the mighty Dennis Connor in the America's Cut world. And you've got to love a bit of that. Moving on with this episode, Kenny broadens his horizons with the Volvo Ocean Race and all the highs and lows that that brings. And he talks about those early, rather scary days on the massive Super Maxi Comanche. But perhaps more than in part one, here you really start to appreciate what's quite unique about Kenny. He's very much one of the boys on the boat, loyal and competitive. And yet, he's still commanding in the boardroom. He's as warm and approachable on the sail loft floor as he is at ease with the billionaire owner. He's naturally very self-deprecating, yet seems to ooze an enviable confidence. Perhaps that's his charm. Would I want to be on his team? Every day. I hope you enjoy part two of the time I spent with Kenny Reed. I didn't want to go to another windward lure race. I wanted to go try to sail around the world. All of a sudden, we're doing the Volvo with a dream sponsor. There's only two types of people in the Southern Ocean, people who thrive in it and people who are trying to get to the end of it. And Kenny, your career hasn't been all about inshore racing. I mean, the Volvo was calling, wasn't it? I mean, firstly, with a few legs on Ericsson, what was your memories of, of that? I mean, such an alien world. Yeah. <clears throat> that was a weird deal where, uh, you know, the Ericsson program, what year was it? It was, it was the time, I think it was 2005 when ABN AMRO uh, won uh, the race overall. And Ericsson went into the uh, regatta with grand expectations and uh, they weren't living up to it. So whenever a program isn't living up to expectations, there's crew movement. You can always tell who's doing well, whether it's a Cup or a Volvo or a, any sort of Grand Prix program is that the crew stays the same throughout the programs. And sure enough, there's a lot of turnover. And Ericsson had made it around to Rio and they were coming up and all of a sudden John Kostecki is the skipper and uh, Roscoe's on board. Still the same core group. Neil McDonald, of all credit, was taken as a skipper and moved off to, uh, he was a watch captain, but I actually always gave Neil heaps of credit for sticking, sticking that out. It was not easy, and um, I, th I forget what what uh, what John Kostecki was going to do, but he announced actually I think halfway up during that leg that that was his last leg on the boat, or his last or maybe even only leg on the boat, and he was stepping off. I, actually, once they got into Annapolis, he announced that he was stepping off, and and uh, and I remember talking to somebody. I was in my office in Portsmouth, Rhode Island, at our loft, and and. I, I don't know who was, it could have been Dan, I forget, it could, I forget who was next door to me at the time, and I leaned over, I said, I bet I get a phone call here soon. And they're like, what are you talking about? I said, well, 
I just don't, on short notice, general proximity, I don't even know Neil McDonald at this stage. Um, I don't know if there's a lot of people that they can get to kind of fill a role that it sounds like Kostecki or Neil were doing on the boat. And it was literally five minutes later, um, Neil McDonald's on line one. Hey, what, what do you think about doing a couple legs on the Volvo? And I said, right there on the spot, without talking to anybody, without talking to my family, I said, listen, I'll do it. I think it really surprised him. I said, I'll do it, but I want to do the rest of the race. I want to become part of the team. I want to be, I want to really sense this thing, get a feel for it, and see if it's something that I enjoy. And quite frankly, uh, well, the first leg up from Annapolis to New York, it blew 40 on the nose. And at one stage, I'm up driving. It was windy and it was nasty. And right off the coast of New Jersey, and... Um, all these guys are laughing. They're all down below, and there's half the crew, three quarters of the crew, smoke cigarettes. They're all smoking cigarettes down below, and I'm up driving on deck by myself. I think Richard Mason is giggling at me upstairs. He's like, "How do you like being a Volvo sailor?" You know, and that was the beginning. The next leg is when uh, a movie star sank, and you know, the young ABN team lost a sailor and Hans Horvitz and. It was like, whoa, welcome to the Volvo. That was, and that was a brutal leg. And, and the, on those boats, on those early Canton keel boats, the creaks and groans. I remember I was in my bunk at one stage. I lean over to Mason and I'm like, hey, Richard, is this normal? He goes, ah, we'll be fine. And, and the whole center of the boat is moving around and crashing down waves. And I'm like, holy Christ, I don't know if this is for me, but it's amazing how the human mind forgets. And by the time I was at the end of the race, I'm like, I, I think I'm kind of hooked here. And uh, as stupid as it sounded, and as, as crazy as it sounded, through all that adversity, I, I, was, I didn't want to go do another windward lured race. I wanted to go try to sail around the world. It was phenomenal. The transformation was phenomenal. What was it? What was, what was the thing that got you? I think, I think the 2003 Cup really burned me out. You know, and then I, I remember Dennis telling me in, in a dark day, Dennis said, you know, you're not even the best Etchell sailor on this boat. You know, this is when we, we weren't doing well. And I'm like, you know what? Screw you. And I, and I think we won every race at 100 boat Etchell's Worlds that next year. So all of a sudden, through, I found myself sailing not because I wanted to win or not because I wanted to lose. It was, I was trying to prove something. And I didn't like that feeling. As successful as that Etchell's Worlds was, I was trying to prove something, and I, I didn't like that on myself. It was time to switch the, flick the switch, and that's where the Volvo came in. And, and Neil McDonald, that phone call came at an incredibly yeah, well. I, I, I joke with people; it either came at an incredibly weak moment or, or an, an opportune moment. I, it was time to, it was time for me to switch things up. I mean, you did, didn't you? For, after Ericsson, you, you know, you got the dream team together with a great campaign for Puma. I mean, what, a, what an amazing sponsor to have. How cool are they? How did, how did all that come together? Yeah, sailing the Maxi Worlds on a boat called All Smoke. And I didn't even know it. Um, Adam Ostenfeld got me on the boat. Old legend, actually old legend Stars and Stripes trimmer, you know, from 1987. And... Uh, and we went and sailed with a wonderful gentleman named Gunter Hertz. And, and, uh, and at the end of the, we were sailing his, his seven, I think it was an 80 foot, uh, it was an 80 foot kind of mini maxi. And we won 
our class in the event, and, which was very cool. And Gunter, and Gunter, every crew dinner, wanted to know more about these crazy Ericsson stories. I'd already done the Ericsson thing. Tell me more stories. Tell me more stories. He was fascinated by it. I'm like, wow, this cool guy. He just kind of, maybe I'm good at selling stories. Turns out he was the majority uh, interest in um, stockholder in Puma. And he's like, you know what? Puma's continually looking for new sports, especially new sports that they can leverage immediately that they're not going to compete against Nike or Adidas in. And he goes, this Volvo thing sounds just crazy enough for Puma to, to think about. I'm like, ah, great, you know, you know, let me know, whatever. And three months later, I get a phone call from Jochen Zeitz, and, and he was the CEO at the time. He goes, Gunther says, uh, we got to do the Volvo, or we should look at doing the Volvo, and you're the guy. I'm like, what? Are you kidding me? And uh, again, it started this snowball of all of a sudden we're doing the Volvo and, and um, in, yeah, with a dream sponsor. It's a sponsor that I learned more about business and marketing and relationships from than you ever could imagine. It was like a PhD in, in trying, to, trying to reach out to the world. Puma, they were high flying at the time and we, I, like I told our team every day, we're now sneaker salesmen. And that's what I learned. We, we became sneaker salesmen. We weren't Volvo sailors. We were sneaker salesmen. How comfortable were you with all of that? I mean, you're running the program. It's, it's big budget. You're in charge of, of yeah. these people and their, and their lives. Yeah. Uh, you know, yeah, yeah. You've you got this demanding sponsor. You know, how comfortable were you taking on all of that? Well, the sponsor... I would call the sponsor anything but demanding. Uh, Antonio Bertone, who was head of marketing for all of Puma, uh, turned into a wonderful friend, as did Jochen. And they couldn't have been more supportive. They loved us because we were uh, uh, one of their sports teams that they could actually talk to, relate to. They weren't dealing with big contracts and, and you know people who represented you and all that stuff. It was like real world. And I think they... Jochen went to every single stopover, and Antonio was almost at every stopover. W wonderful friend, Antonio, at the, even through the whole thing. Um, so there was no pressure there whatsoever. But, you know, picking Botine at the time was a big, that was a big ask. The designer, yeah. Yeah, and, and uh, Marcelino and, and Adolfo, they busted their butt. You know, we had, a, we had a good boat. We didn't have a great boat. We had a good enough boat. We got a couple breaks. You know, Bauer put... Telephonic up on the rocks. We were tight. We were neck and neck. Ericsson was in a whole different league with a two-boat, really highly funded uh, campaign. Uh, but I think to come in second in that event showed something. And the the party in St. Petersburg, Russia. I, I remember being exceptionally hungover the next day, and and Jokin saying we're going out to breakfast. And at breakfast, he said we're doing this again, right? And the last thing as a Volvo sailor you ever want to hear is you got to go sail around the world again. You've just a you've lived, b nobody got hurt. You know you didn't have to. That, that to me was the dread is to have to make a phone call. Your your husband, your father, your son is not coming home. Never had to make that call. Uh, you know just. Pure, pure sailing again. For, for me, it was pure. Uh, hard, you know, there were hard times. The Volvo is really peaks and valleys. There are wonderful times and there are ruthlessly hard times. And like what? Tell us, tell us some oh, of that we story. Doing, we had a couple, you know, we, you know, we had a, 
we had we had crew problems, especially about halfway around the world. I, listen, I, I'm the first to admit now I didn't have any idea what I was doing. You know, I, I, I was fortunately I found Kimo Worthington early on, and he helped me run the program and became you know one of my better friends in the whole world. And and Kimo, uh, you know, Kimo was the glue that kept the whole program together. But you know, I, it, I learned a lot from that. It was we created. I didn't know enough about it, so I had to create an all-star team. I had to bring in a bunch of people that, frankly, I met for the first time during their first interview that had legendary names. And, and you know, an all-star team never really works. Until, we, until, until A, I got more confidence. I think if you show a little bit of lack of confidence as the leader, as it turns out, it's easy for people to start picking at you. And I wasn't good enough. I, I, I'm just, I wasn't good enough. And, and some guys, some of the guys in the boat were doubting, were doubting me, I think. And we went through a wonderful first part of the race. And then we had a tough middle part of the race. We had to make some tough decisions. And Jochen was right there with me. Jochen was, I talked to him on the phone a lot about the situation. He even offered to resign at one stage. He's like, no, 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 you're my guy. I said, oh, well... Okay, and so we made some pretty radical moves, and uh, you know Earl Williams and Rob Greenow, uh, Earl, who I'd sailed with a ton in the past. Rob really turned into a key part of the team. Uh, you know Kirby was on board. T- towards the end, we we maybe and I don't, nothing against the crew, but maybe we weren't that all-star team anymore. We were more of a, a gang of people who kind of started to believe in each other. And all of a sudden, toward the end of the race, we had, I think we had a 2-2-1-2. Two, two, two. And, and the two, going into St. Petersburg, we lost by a boat length, literally a boat length. Um, we, we did good things at the end. I was really proud of how that campaign, and so sure enough, Jochen's like, let's go, we're doing it again. And I'm just hung as a dog, and I'm like, no, we're not doing it again. Are you kidding me? No. We did do it again. We'll, we'll, we'll touch on that in a second. But I guess you, you watch that race from the outside, and you know you imagine if when I ask you the toughest moments, it's going to be kind of, you know, Southern Ocean, scares, blah, blah. But actually, the toughest moments is to do with team and no people question. and communicating. And to this day, you know what? We're, I still... I, I talk to a lot of those. And by the way, then and you're in a bond forever, right? So when, when you go through hell in the water with uh, a group a group like that, I think any Volvo sailor, same thing, you talk to the Vendee guys and, and any of these extreme offshore sailors, there is a bond because the bond is cemented by the times you have with your crew on board the boat, but it's also cemented by the knowledge that you are the only safety net for the rest of the fleet. And that I got your back. So I'm trying to beat the hell out of you on the water. But I remember talking to Bauer uh, in the middle of the Southern Ocean and they broke their headstay on Telefonica the first time around. I'm like, you sure? You know, he's like, no, 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 we're going to keep going. The headstay is gone, but we're just going to keep up our furling sales. And we're emailing back and forth. I'm like, check in. Just keep checking in. You know, you, you got, I, I, I can't tell you how many times people either checked in on us or we would check in on others. Hey, you're parked. You, you okay? Everything good? Yeah, yeah, we're okay. Um, nobody's given up their secrets. And there were times where, yeah, it's just a bond. And you, you go to a cocktail party with all the Volvo teams and 
you spend the whole night with other teams because you're just shooting the breeze because you're living, you know how hard the other people are working and it's just an incredible respect. It's very, it's just a really cool thing. I asked Kyle Langford, you know, what was it really like in the Southern Ocean? It was this his first time, the last, the last ocean race. You know, and he said, it is no place for a human. Yeah. How would you, you're good with words, Katie, you know, how would you describe what it's actually like? Yeah. Um, it, well, I don't know if I can, I, w I would say, first of all, Kyle is right. The Southern Ocean is for, there's only two people in the Southern Ocean, two types of people. People who thrive in it and people who are trying to get to the end of it. And I think I was a person trying to get to the end of it. I, I didn't thrive in the Southern Ocean. I, you're so far, you just feel alone. Um, you're, you're so far away from anything. Uh, it's so gray. A lot of the days are so gray. The waves are so big, especially the second time. You know, Brad Jackson, uh, who was one of our very key guys in the second campaign, right before the start, the problem with weather these days is you know how bad the potential is for your next leg or for your next day. I was never, I was never nervous in the middle of a storm. I was always nervous in the in, leading up to it because it's like, oh, this is going to suck. You know, this is going to be a really hard couple of days. Well, we knew when we left Auckland uh, and the second time around, we were going to have 10 really bad days. And this storm, we went through a, a cold front the first night, had a, a really windy front the first night and then had a transition a light air transition into a massive circulation i think that other parts of the world would call essentially a hurricane you know and and we had three guys in the bunk two drivers and casey smith who was kind of our glue all injured and in the bunk um uh you know, john oswain's elbow was the size of a small you know of a of a volleyball you know and so three of us drove for you know, I, I can't remember how long until finally uh, Jono got back on deck. But anyway, it was there was one night, and Brad, Brad and Tony Mutter were really good at this. They they knew when to say, "Hey, time to pull the throttle back a little bit." And we throttled back. Uh, uh, Group Ama throttled back, and everybody else kept the hammer down. And the other three boats almost sank that night. Um, they all limped into Chile, all completely busted. Um, us and ourselves in Group Amo were the only two that got around the horn, you know, without having to stop. It was, um, you know, it's real down there, man. It's real. And it's, uh, especially when you're sucked into one of these big storms like that. There's no way out. And, uh, <laughs> and that's where you, I, I think the camaraderie still comes back into effect. Ian, Ian broke before he left Auckland, essentially, and he was a thousand miles behind. I'm like, man, Walker on yeah, I, I, I don't know. That must have been really hairy because now that is real exposure. At least we had the other boats around us, around us, meaning within a couple hundred miles. Um, he was exposed. And sure enough, they broke and they ended up in Chile as well. So it, it, it's just, listen, it's a different mentality. And it's a different world. And you either, you either you're in that make it through it mentality or or I thrive at mentality. And there are some people that thrive in the Southern Ocean. I, I, I think I'm, I'm, I'd rather stick with a make it through because it proves maybe I'm slightly sane. <laughs> <laughs>
not that same because obviously you did it again but I guess the second time you're back with the the same sponsor you can pick your own team you know what to expect you've done a lap you know how different did that did that second campaign feel yeah completely from day one completely different and you're right the knowledge you know what you didn't know you didn't know in the first race well there's no excuses in the second race and yeah, a broken hanger pin on a D1, you know, on the first leg. Yeah, we, our training schedule was great. Juan and, and Juan's design team were fantastic. You know, we had our own build team uh, that, uh, that, that worked out of the uh, New England Boat Works facility right down the street from where we set up shop in Newport. You know, so I was home and we, we had this hand-picked team and really fun working with Juan. I really enjoyed that. And you know, we were a pre-race, you know, we were clearly one of the favorites. You know, there was a few teams that were, well, I think all the teams had a, had probably a, a place in that pre-race favorite, but we were no slouches. And, um, you know, halfway through, you know, where, we were, I think, 10 miles behind Telefonica at the time. A uh, uh, couple boats, Abu Dhabi obviously busted their rig, not even 24 hours into the race. Sonia... Uh, almost busted the bust of their boat 24 hours into the race. This is all in the med. Uh, Group Ama took a left turn to go down the coast, and they were literally hundreds of miles behind. And Camper kind of took a left turn. They bailed out, but they were over 100. So we had a good second place going, and we were going to have a good fight with, uh, with um, uh, Iker Martinez and their whole group to, to, into Cape Town and ripping along, and everything's great, and bang. And that bang changed changed my life a the experience on tristan de cuna i think changed all of our lives but uh to go from a pre-race favor that was destructive i mean we were i mean to say we were down is an understatement i've never seen casey smith raise his voice but we had a good kind of a sob session the first night we got into tristan de cuna like what the hell just happened how could we have prevented this how could we have done better what do we do? What were our mistakes? And there were some tough words said. And uh, but you know what? That team, that team galvanized. It took us a couple legs to galvanize, but we had one meeting. You know, we still weren't doing great in China. There was a bit of a little bit of dissension. It wasn't great. We were having a team meeting, and everybody was expecting me to come in and say we're not fast enough. You know, and I came in, and it was a big leadership day. I came in and put my hand up and said. Tactically, we're not good enough. Um, that's where we got to make big changes. And Tommy Addis and I kind of changed how we how we did things. And I'm kind of an exaggerator by nature. That's my mother was an exaggerator, and he's like, "You got to stop exaggerating." It like supposedly bugged the shit out of him, and good for him. We we had again, we had a down and out. And as a leader, I learned a lot. You got to let people speak, and you got to listen to when they do speak. And we changed how we did things. And from then on. We were great. I mean, we had a chance of winning the thing after, after, after having a busted rig. And, you know, t- coming down to the end, a bunch of boats had a chance of winning. But we were right back in the hunt. And I was very proud of that. I was very proud of that. That was, that was pretty cool. Some moments in life, isn't there, where it, it's a moment to step up. And I just wonder, you know, the, there was so much expectation in that campaign. And the rig falls down. You're miles from anywhere. You have to motor forever to some island in the middle of nowhere. After, after thumbing to an oil tanker to get enough diesel fuel to get there in the first place. And 
I mean, I can, I can imagine how hard that time was, mm. but you're the leader of that team. They're looking to you, Kenny, yeah. Yeah. to you change this. Crack. How hard yeah. was that? Oh, it was brutally hard. And I, I'm, I'm sure if I went back and did it all over again, I'd do a lot of things different, but we made it through. Might have taken a leg or two to, to kind of snap out of it, you know, to kind of get out of that hangover. But fortunately, it was a veteran team. Uh, a lot, of, a lot of people on board the boat with a lot of respect for one another, and um, I think other teams. It was crushing, just to make the next start was amazing. The shore team and what Chemo did and Tim Hackett and that whole group to get a rig, fly a rig to Cape Town for us, to, for Chemo and and our sponsors, you know, Huck and Svensson and Antonio Hooken from Berg Propulsion and Antonio Bertone, for them to fund a ship to come pick us up in the middle of the ocean, put us on the ship, take us back to Cape Town, get the rig in with 24 hours to go and to start the race, to start the next leg, it meant we were still in business. You know, we were still in the race and it was a pretty phenomenal team that way. When you look back at your time in the Volvo Ocean Race, what, what do you remember it for? Oh, well, I, I remember the camaraderie. I really enjoyed the camaraderie. I remember how hard it was to, to continue to push yourself. Uh, but like any competitive sailor, it sounds terrible, but I remember the mistakes more than I remember. You know, I remember what we could have done better, what I could have done better. Uh, uh, you know, you better learn from your mistakes. I think learning from your mistakes is, is a way uh, more important fact of life than, than even your, your greatest uh, achievements. So, what was, what was your big takeaway from that? Oh, it's a million. I don't think there's anything. Well, I, I made a mistake. I got a little cocky on, on choosing the rig. Um, and I'm not making anything out to who we chose it from. But, you know, I had a good thing with North Technology Group. And um, we had some, you know, we had, we had some ways that we convinced ourselves that we could make a better rig using the Hall Spars technique at the time. And I, I can't help but thinking, nothing is, by the way, this is nothing against Hall Spars. This is, and by the way, the mast didn't break because of Hall Spars either. But does the chain of events that set off that created a, a little, like two and a half inch hanger pin that connects the D1 to the mast made out of the wrong stainless steel you know, it just set a chain of events in place that had catastrophic race losing um, uh, ramifications. So I think I learned more than anything else, to don't get, don't think too hard, you know? Too much risk. Yeah, it wasn't even risk. I had a good thing. I had a good thing going with, with my team at North Technology Group. And, you know, we had all, all the sales and all the package, but... We, we chose to leave the nest for that. And um, uh, I, I, I do. I, and again, it had nothing to do with who we chose. This was a freak situation where I think a, a, a human error, a human uh, who was actually not even part of the mass manufacturing, a completely outside resource, made a little stainless piece that was out of the wrong stainless. And, and the, the metal, metal people said it was always going to break. It, was, it wasn't a matter of if, it was a matter of when. And I, yeah, I, I struggle with that. I, I think about it almost every day, actually. <laughs> yeah. 
you came back from from that lap of the planet and Tom Whitten gave you a new job, didn't yeah. he? Promoted you to, to president of North Sales. I mean, happy days. What, what did you feel about that at the time? Well, it, it was kind of a, uh, it was a big transition happening. Um, Terry Kohler had decided to sell the company. Uh, Peter Dubins was becoming involved. Um, I took about three, four months off, but you know, kept my hand in it, of course. And, and really the, the conversation uh, with Peter and I was, I hear you're the guy. Um, uh, so we'd like to, we, we'd like you to, to do this role. And the conversation was quite different with Tom. It was, uh, it's time, it's time to stop playing. It's time to get serious. And, and I, and, uh, I was ready, you know, especially after a Volvo, you can't have enough time off after a Volvo to, to not think I'm tired and, and I don't have to do this anymore. But, you know, Comanche came along and other cool projects, they don't stop. The cool projects came along. Um, but Tom said, no, no more America's Cups, no more Volvos. It's time to be a big boy. And, and if you're going to do this job, you got to do this job. And, uh, and that's where we still are today. And it was the right decision at the time. I wouldn't change a thing. It was the right decision then. It's the right decision now. And uh, it was, uh, yeah, it's pretty... It, it, Turns out it was a, another great moment in a, in a career full of lucky, phenomenal. I consider myself the luckiest guy on the planet, and it was another lucky, phenomenal moment. We never didn't trust that boat, you know? We had all the reason to. It was just insane. We do have to bring new people into the sport of sailing, so if we don't try to reach out to that group, we're not doing our job. There were still exciting projects, though. I mean, Comanche, of course, the giant 100-foot maxi monohull. I mean, she turned heads everywhere you took her. I mean, it looked and felt like a whole load of trouble. How extreme <laughs> was she? Well, at the time, it was quite extreme, of course. And But you know what? We, we came up with, uh, I always tell Juan, Juan was designing Rambler, at Rambler Juan 88 at the, yeah. at the time. and. And, you know, Juan, because I had such a good experience with him, he likely would have been my first candidate, candidate for, to do something like that. You know, Jim Clark, I'd gotten to know through sailing J-boats with him, and he decided, you know, what the heck, let's go try to break some records. He wanted to own a sports team, really, and sailing a sailing sports team. And his sailing team that sailed on, on Hanneman and on Comanche were his sports team. So... Uh, I remember calling up Juan and just saying, hey, listen, uh, George David is, a, is an old friend, and I'm not... George has already long had launched his campaign. And I tried to talk Jim out of building the boat. I'm like, what? this is crazy. What do you want to do this for? He goes, oh, I, uh, actually, Neville Crichton down in Australia. Jim, Jim and Christy went to, uh, went to Australia every year for Christmas. And Neville Crichton, who was sailing all the Alfa Romeos at the time, he, kept, he, he knew Jim. And kept saying, come on, when are you going to join the party? And that's the way Jim tells the story. When are you going to join the party, Jim? you got to get a 100-footer. And, 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 and the day he said, I, I want to do this. And he said, Neville Crichton better be careful what he wished for. You know, but Neville had already, had, he had just decided to get out of it. Sure enough, he, he, Jim Clark, go big or go home. And, uh, and you know, Rambler was already well underway. And I didn't want to interfere with George's project. Uh, I tried to talk Jim out of it because I'm like, you have no idea how hard and how crazy this is going to be and how costly it's going to be. Sure enough, uh, he's like, nope, we're going to do this. Let's go. 
It's like, oh my God, here we go. And it was cool. It just tapped into the, the old team, uh, the old build team, um, uh, and had them run the build. And as long as, you know, when Casey and Tim Hackett uh, are confident, then I'm confident. The build team and, and the design team with VPLP and Guillaume Verdier um, just brought a new life to all of us again. This, the, kind of that French, crazy French mentality of, yeah, we don't have to do it that way. Yeah, but it worked for Essentially, we all talked one day. It's like, we got to stop saying it worked for us in the Volvo because this is not the Volvo. This is, this is a whole different world. And Guillaume and, and all the guys at VPLP were wonderful to work with. And I had, my, I had the, the shore team and the build team that I trusted we never didn't trust that boat, you know? We had all the reason to. It was just insane. Except for one day we took you, you sailing. You say that. I'm just about to bring that up. I mean, I remember we sailed with you. Do you remember yeah, that day yeah. in Sydney Harbour? Yeah, and, yeah, you know, yeah. she was so brand new. And it felt like from the moment we got on, it felt so intimidating. Almost as if, you know, the boat was in charge of us. Almost. I mean, was there a moment, Kenny, where you felt... I think we might have been a bit too punchy. Well, that, that was a moment in time, and we were just leaving the heads in Sydney Hobart, in Sydney Harbor, and just to go out practicing one day. And it was windy, and there were big breaking. I'm sure you remember big breaking waves at the heads. Jimmy Spithill sailed that race with us. He was on board, and Kimo was there, and our you know our whole team, you know, good good people on board the boat, the best, you know, uh, and everybody looked at each other like, yeah, we're not ready for this yet, and. Listen, Jim was another one with expectations. And I think if we had busted the boat before the race started, and that was a boat-busting day, I would have rather, my mentality was I would have rather busted the boat in the race because at least it was for purpose than bust the boat before the race started. And we, like you said, we were, we had three days on the boat back in Rhode Island, and, and then we delivered the boat down to Charleston, stuck it on a ship, brought it to Sydney, and sailed it for, what, two and a half weeks, of which we got blown out for half the days, and fresh is the understatement of the century. We had no idea. Be, be honest with me, Kenny, because always on the boat, we're there, we've got the camera, we're filming away. And you've put a, a, a bit of a face on, but that day, was a moment what did you actually no no no. A, a few of us got in out of your camera by the way very purposely what the hell have we done like we we're just wondering i could could wild could wild oats have gotten out through that i mean it was big breaking waves and it's like jesus we don't know how to and that and we spent the next couple of days talking about how to slow it down not to speed it up all of a sudden after that day uh our mentality really changed it's like you know, we get the mainsail all the way on the boom, but that big fat head is still up. We put a big a reef point so we could actually sheet the fat head part of the mainsail so we wouldn't have to get a guy up the mast. And that, yeah, that was a changing moment. But like any boat, we talked about this in this America's Cup uh, talk tonight, sailors always prevail. So you just get used to it. You know, as silly as that sounds, what, what was a slam a scary slam when a boat was new before you know it is run of the mill and not to say that we sailed in a lot of big breaking waves like that on that boat but that boat that boat became literally easy to sail as silly and as insane as that sounds when we when you put the talent on a boat like that that we had the talent for um 
there was nothing. You know, the Bermuda race where 30% of the boats didn't start, the whole Grand Prix division didn't start because of the weather forecast. It wasn't even a, it wasn't talked about for a single second that we weren't going to do that race because we trusted the boat, we trusted the team, we trusted our ability to reef, we trusted everything at that stage. Break the transatlantic record, break the 24-hour record, break this record, break that record. You know what? That's what the boat's made for. That's what Jim's expecting. That's what we're expecting. Let's go. But back then it was exciting, wasn't it? I mean, what was, <laughs> what was she like? Do you remember that race? You know, she's, what was she like fully lit up in the bass race? Yeah, well, unfortunately, the, we had a super long transition. Like, the, the Sydney Hobart, as it goes, is, is defined by the transition between fronts, between, you know, a southerly buster coming in or something like that. And it was windy upwind, and it was going to transition to fairly, you know, kind of medium breezy downwind. But that transition took... I don't know, eight hours, and that eight hours was in the notorious Bass Strait of which we essentially were becalmed across and watched Wild Oats sail away. So what, the beginning of the race uh, was quite windy, upwind, not quite windy, windy enough, upwind, to give us a f- taste for it. The end of the race was just kind of fun, downwind sailing. And uh, we never had that light-up moment, in the tra- and we learned a lot about the boat, the transition. We had to figure out how to make it better in light air because wild oats literally sailed away in light air. Back to the drawing board, boys. And Jim was the best at, okay, here's the next project. Here's what we've got to do. Guillaume, all the young guys at VPLP, what are we going to do? You know, how, how are we going to change this? And it's just, boom, let's go. Let's get into it. Let's go next. And I think that was the only race we ever... You know, only offshore race we ever lost, uh, boat for boat, because we just kept making changes. And Jim had his sports team, and he wanted his sports team to win. We're, we're going to get off sailing in a sec, but um, most fun, most most fun boat you've sailed? I, I would say so because it didn't have, if it didn't have that crazy pressure of a cup or a Volvo race. You know, it just had this. The only pressure was the pressure we put on ourselves to, to perform at the top end of the boat. And I think we were always more mad, no matter if we broke a record or not, we were always mad, like, hey, we could have done, we could have done this, we could have done this. But it was a great group and a great team. And, you know, just, you know, Casey Smith and I have done a lot of miles together. And uh, so two times around the planet, plus the whole Comanche campaign. And, uh, you know, I miss Casey. He's working for American Magic now. He's on their shore team. He's actually in charge of their hydraulics. And I wonder if American Magic realizes that the best sailor in their program is driving a tender half the days. So, so uh, Casey, if you're listening to this, I, I miss sailing with you, big guy. <laughs> Off the water, Kenny. We often find you involved in broadcasting as well. I mean, you had a, a key role as lead expert commentator from the Cup in Bermuda. I mean, obviously it's a role, you know, I've been known to, to dabble in a bit myself, but you know, how challenging did you find it? So, you know, it started in San Francisco and Russell was uh, looking to kind of change up the commentation, the commentating team. Uh, and Antonio Bertone, it kind of goes back to Puma again. Puma was the apparel, the licensed apparel sponsor for Oracle in that campaign. And as legend goes, uh, Antonio tells it this way anyway. Antonio wants to take credit for all this stuff. So he, he said he's sitting there talking to Russell, and Russell's like, you know, I, I want to change some stuff up on television. What, what do you think? And, 
Antonio said, well, you should talk to Kenny Reed. He can talk his way out of anything. You know, he can talk, talk his way through anything. And uh, he's like, really? And, and he, so he called me and he said, would you ever be interested? And it turns out they had a contest. They invited, I don't, did you go out, did you go out and, and interview with them? So I, I didn't really, I didn't have a good feel for what they were doing beforehand. And all of a sudden I'm in San Francisco and Randy Smythe was there when I was there. And um, I, I think they interviewed like eight or 10 people. And, and the way they did it with me, tell me if it was the way they did it with you, is Todd Harris was there and Todd was going to be the lead and they wanted a color commentary to work with Todd Harris and Todd Harris literally knew exactly, he knew less than zero about sailing. Wonderful, uh, wonderful guy. I, I thought he, he picked it up quickly and he could run a TV show. I mean, he, he could run a TV show. He'd be sitting there watching his kids' soccer scores while he's got people shouting in his ears and just run, he could fluidly run a TV show. So what they did with me anyway was they stuck me in a room with Todd and they put uh, an old, um, an old uh, uh, broadcast up on the screen and said, have at it boys. And for some reason, Todd and I, um, we hit it off in two seconds. I mean, we actually had each other laughing in the middle of this broadcast. And according to, again, as legend goes, they were like, I don't think it had anything to do with whether I was good or bad at it. I think the guys, you know, Dennis um, just thought we had a chance of getting good because we clearly liked each other right there on the spot. He, they could tell that there was a camaraderie. And yeah, that San Francisco, Todd said at the end of the San Francisco Cup, of course, the legendary comeback, he said, quit. He said, don't ever do this again because it's never going to get any better and just quit right now stop broadcasting don't ever broadcast for sailing again and of course i wasn't that smart but uh, bermuda was also a phenomenal experience although you know i remember in the build-up to bermuda and i guess you know russell cut russell Coates is, is is really into the tv product i mean he he properly watches it and analyzes it and if if you're if you're a commentator or you're any kind of you know the talent team you know, he's, he's very much on your case. And I remember sitting in in a discussion with the commentary team from one of the World Series events that you were commentating on. Um, and there was a lot of chat, wasn't there, about vocabulary, you know, saying left of screen or right of screen as opposed to port or starboard. And it's, it's really tricky. And you were getting, I remember you were getting a hard time from Russell about this. I mean, how much did you feel, God, you know, I got to, that it was an important job, I guess. Uh, yeah, you're right. Russell is, uh, to his credit, you know, he, he, I think he kind of promised Larry and, and the rest that we're going to make a difference and we're going to try something different and we're going to try to make it good. And, and he took it personal, you know, and, and, uh, and it was always great. When he came down after a day of racing, you knew there was going to be some good criticism and some bad criticism, but he was going to call a spade a spade. So, I enjoyed it. I appreciated it. Uh, and as far as, you know, what I learned very quickly was uh, the sailing world wants you to use technical terms and wants you to treat their sport with the utmost respect and historical respect. And, uh, you know, if somebody's pulling on the Cunningham, you've got to say they're, they're, they're trimming the Cunningham, whereas the rest of the world, who they're trying to attract, is like, what the bleep is a Cunningham? You know, so you had to learn... 
to me, the, the hardest part, but I think the part I'm most proud of is to learn how to talk to average people, but at the same time, don't lose your core constituency. And that's where he pushed us really hard. And that's where Todd was great because Todd didn't know anything. I mean, toward the end, Todd was getting in trouble because he'd say, I, they're going to do a jibe set around this, Mark, aren't they, Kenny? And, and at the end of the day, Russell comes running in. He goes, I don't want you ever to use the word jibe set again. You don't know what a jibe set is. You're to talk to the average people and tell them just, how, just what sailing is or what, what's going on in the race course. It was hilarious. So um, it is, it's the, as you know, better than all of us to try to, you got to treat the sport with respect and, 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 and treat your core fan base with respect. Don't talk too stupid to them because they're not stupid. They, they know if you're trying to make them out to be an idiot. But at the same time, we do have to bring new people into the sport of sailing. So if we don't, if, if we don't try to reach out to that group, we're, do, we're not doing our job. I mean, I know I'm kind of biased because, you know, I... I like um, I like to storytell, and I you know I always say we work in broadcasting, but you know I just think it's vital for the growth of our sport. You know, getting a good broadcast package. You know, where do you see our sports currently? I guess, and you know, are we in good shape? Do you think? You know, you're a, you're a key stakeholder in in the whole industry, yeah. Kenny. Oh, uh, it's well, certainly. Listen, we we do all we've done all kind. Of, we're not growing, and that's a fear in its own right in any sort of business world if if you're if you're not growing you can make a case you better shrink way back again and start again you know but of course we're not going to do that i think there's a lot of people here here um at the yacht race forum there's a lot of people trying to tick that box of how do we reach out to the, to a bigger broader public how do um a lot of people trying to create these you know, SailGP is the perfect example of, of trying to reach out to outside of the comfort zone of, of sailing. We have to do it. At North Sales, we talk about it all the time. And at North Technology Group, we talk about it all the time. How can we reach out? You know, Stan's initiative where he's going to try to maybe use his smartphone to tell us the rules on, on board. So red light, green light, smartphone. So you're in a, be you're in a, be you're in a beer can series and, and all of a sudden... You can learn the rules simple, simply by, whoops, red light just came up on your phone. Oh, we got to do a circle. We made a mistake. Well, then we can check in on the app after the race and figure out what we did wrong. Make starting simpler, whatever the case may be. we got to try something. we got to keep trying stuff until something works. Kids, one of the statistics today was that I heard from one of the groups was, um, was there's like 600,000 kids sailing opties or something obscene. I, I don't, that could be a... Don't don't quote me on that. It might be the representative from the obvious. Yeah, it, it could have been. <laughs> but uh, by the time they're graduating on, there's only like six thousand that actually continue on with the sport. Maybe it's sixty thousand to six thousand or something like that. It could be six hundred. But just the fact that we're losing that many kids at such a short period of time. I, you know, I, I'm writing an article for Seahorse. I read an article for Seahorse. I think we got to fundamentally change how we treat a sailboat race. I think we have the technology now to, to tell you. I'm so sick of sitting on the water waiting for wind to come up all day long. The amount of man hours or woman hours wasted waiting for the wind to come up. Tell us the night before by looking at your app and get on sail flow or predict wind because they're unbelievably good now and tell us what time the race is going to start tomorrow. So I can hang out with my kids and go to a soccer game in the morning if we're going to start at 2. Or 
if the dying northerly is going to go away and there's not going to be any breeze in the afternoon, I'll, I'll start the race at 8 in the morning. Tell us the night before. Let's stop wasting everybody's time. It, it's, it's really frustrating. And the sport has to fundamentally change to, to say there's other people who are trying to get the time of the people sailing, of the owners sailing, of the crews sailing. It's time that we respect people's time and actually use the technology that's available to utilize their time freshly and, and refreshingly. And I don't know, I, I, I really hope I can get some people. New York Yacht Club, I'm really pushing to try to do this flex, flex timing for, for a day of racing. It's just time, we gotta do something. I mean, I can tell you are as well, but I'm, yeah, I'm fundamentally worried about the sport and it's a sport we're passionate about. You know, where do you see, where do you see the future? And I guess how, how urgent is it to make some changes? Well, it's, it's urgent to keep up with the times. And that's what I think it is about, about this potential flex scoring system. Um, you know, if it's, and the other thing is the perfection of a race course and the perfection of a windward lured race course. Guess what? If it's 20 degrees bias to the leeward end, if you can't make the start on starboard tack, send them. Tough. Start on port. Just start. Just go. The perfection of the starting line, because we all ping one end and we give people a hard time if it's three degrees bias to one end, it doesn't matter. Utilize the time. Get people racing. We could do twice as many races in the course of a weekend if we weren't trying to make the weather mark perfectly upwind. Guess what? If we reach to the weather mark every once in a while, reach the weather mark and get in. You know what? The best sailor is still going to win. If we do a downwind start every once in a while, I, I, I did two around the world races because I got sick of windward lured racing. Well, the perfection of creating a race course has to stop. Just send them. If it's blowing three, guess what? Send them. If it's blowing 28, Either don't go out or learn how to reef. Don't waste our time. Please stop wasting our time. Take the postponement flag, throw it in the bin. If you take us out there, we're starting the race. I can tell you're writing an article. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I don't I need I to just, read it now. Well, yeah, still I, buy Seahorse magazine, please, because I'm, it's, it's coming. <laughs> the reality, Kenny, though, is that all of that, all of that detail is not going to revitalize the sport that we've grown up with and are absolutely passionate about. I don't know, we need a, it needs a, it needs a kick. Well, uh, kids, uh, affordable boats, what do we do with old plastic boats? You know, there's a lot of old plastic boats. It leads into the whole uh, green initiative that our industry has to take up. Uh, but the bottom line is when you still, we all say this, but when you have a good sailing day um, for, for, Grizzled veterans. I'll speak for myself. I'll, I might throw you into the, into the, uh, into that mix. Um, there's still nothing like it, right? You come in off a great day on the water. It's like, well, where else would you rather have been today? And, and so that I think people are still passionate. They just want. They, I, I, I do really fundamentally think a big change is please respect my time, and especially owners. You know, think, think of some of these big regattas. And, and again, I, I'll use the New York Yacht Club as an example. We go out on spring, you know, the spring regatta. It, it's the longest standing regatta in North America. I think 156 years or something in, uh, in, uh, in June, every single year. And you think of a postponement for two hours and you look around the fleet and there's titans of industry. Oh my God, the man hours and, and the money and the time 
and the potential for, like I said, I could go to my kid's soccer game. I could play a round of golf this morning. I could have actually had breakfast with my wife. Whatever the case may be, I think if we fundamentally stop wasting everybody's time and when we're going to sail, just go for it, I think that's a good start. I think it's, it's, it doesn't seem like a breakthrough start, but I think it's a good start. What about you, Kenny? A man that's given so much of his life to sailing. I mean, I remember meeting you straight off the boat at the end of the Fastnet race a few years back. You just sailed Comanche to, to line honours. You know, dawn, it was just, just dawn, wasn't it? You finished in the dark and, and you arrived in Plymouth at dawn. And you're immediately rushing off to your daughter's graduation. Yeah. You know, from skipper to dad mode yeah. at the flick of a switch. How much has sailing been your whole life? Well, it's been my whole life. It's, it's had its consequences, you know, with, with personal lives too. You know, it's, it's tough. It's not all perfect. There's no question about that. Uh, my daughter, obviously all of us, all of our kids are the most important things in our life. She now graduated from college and not to make you feel old, she's graduated from college and, and, uh, and has a job out in California, you know, and, and of course in the environmental world, she's going to save the world of which she reminds me constantly, the world that we have screwed up, that, that her generation is going to fix. Uh, she's not the only young person saying that, I might add. Um, yeah, it, it's hard, isn't it, to prioritize our lives because we were you know, we were given a gift, right? And we had to utilize that gift, especially while we have the time. And no question, it takes a toll on, uh, on family and loved ones. And you don't make the best moves sometimes. But the good news is, uh, I think if it's done, if it's done properly, it all's well that ends well. And fortunately, we have an amazing kid uh, who I'm exceptionally proud of. And uh, and, you know, still got a bunch of years. I, I kind of sound like I'm wrapping it up, to, so to speak. Uh, but I, I still got a lot. I got plenty to do here still. And, and I'm still, I, I, I still, I, I love what I'm doing. And I think we have some good, good things, more good things to come for sure. Would you do anything differently looking back? Oh, of course. Yeah, yeah. Hindsight is, uh, is a wonderful ally, but it's also your worst enemy, of, of course. Uh, but... You know what? You are where you are, and where I am right now is downright phenomenal. You know, I have a great home life. Uh, um, I, you know, I have a great job, a great home life, a, a great group of friends. It's uh, you know, and, and this sport is still is still tough to handle and and and, and a challenge every day, and uh, something that I enjoy. That's a great Kenny Reed soundbite to, to end on. <laughs> Thank you. My pleasure. Always, always a pleasure. He's such a good communicator. I could listen to Kenny all day. I hope you enjoyed it, all 90 minutes. It's been a whopper. Next month, we're heading to Cagliari in Sardinia, home of the Italian America's Cup team, Luna Rossa. Our guest will be one of my all-time favorite interviews. He's punchy, edgy, sometimes abrasive. He adds drama and entertainment to even the dullest of press conferences. But he's far from all bluster. Australian Jimmy Spittle has skippered his team to three America's Cup victories. He knows what it takes to deliver when the stakes are high. And although to the outside world it can seem like he's pumping his chest, 
if you're in his world, part of his team, his loyalty and positiveness is legendary. Jimmy Spiddle is complex. Fact, it's gonna be good. Please let me know what you think about the podcast. I'm easy to find at Shirley Sale on Instagram and Twitter, or just me on Facebook. And please do remember to like and review on whatever platform you're joining us on. As ever, the podcast is produced by Tim at Vertigo Films. A huge thanks for all his hard work and his attention to detail. We really strive to bring you a high quality listen. Until next time, thank you so much for listening. Have fun on the water. Sail safe, everyone. This is Cup One. Rachel speaking. Cups are coming here. Cups are coming. We're 1.5 below. Stand by. Two dives here, boys. We're looking at 10.5 and 42. This is Castle One standing by. Out. Oh.